Welcome to the Inside Events Podcast by Swapcard, the leading virtual, hybrid, and in-person event platform. Inside Events is your go-to podcast for fresh insights from the world's top event professionals. Here are your hosts, Bob and Mia from Swapcard. Good afternoon, marketing and event professionals, and welcome to the Inside Events Podcast powered by Swapcard. I'm so excited to welcome everyone to another great episode to talk all things marketing, events, and engagement. Once again, I'm your host, Bob Chain, a strategic account manager here at SwapGuard to navigate the exploration into all things marketing, community, hybrid, and more. As there are so many interesting innovations going on within our space, we are thrilled at the opportunity to highlight some of the top minds within the industry and really lean on their experiences to drive innovation. Now, today, we are going to really be focusing on the idea of managing risks and the different ways that we can approach this, especially in a post-pandemic world, and really focusing on the space of live experiences and marketing. With this in mind, I'm thrilled to introduce our guest, Paul Cook, the author of both Risk It, How to Run Great Events, and Live and Remotely Engaging, as well as the Managing Director of Hybrid Events Center, which helps organizations with hybrid strategy and content. In addition to Paul, this episode, I'm thrilled to be joined once again by my co-host and partner, Miss Mia Masson. Now, Paul, to kick us off today, you have been in the experiential space for some time now and really have seen some of the highs and lows. Can you just provide the audience, you know, a little more depth surrounding your background in this space and the work you do today? Sure. And uh, thank you for having me um, having me on the show today. I've been lucky because I've had a variety of different roles within the events sector. When I came into it, I was originally in insurance and I wanted to find out more about how my clients were getting on with, with their events and where their pain points were. And, and, so that, and, and that led me to join Meeting Professionals International. And I joined that because I, I came at it from one angle, which was to understand their issues better. But I was soon swept up into the whole events arena. And uh, I've done multiple roles since then of holding in-person events, but also experimenting with hybrid events some 10 years ago now. I've done hosted buyer meetings, I've done exhibitions and all sorts of other things in the middle of that. But it's always been business events that have really been my key area and focus. Yeah, so (laughs) I've seen a few things, as you say. Great. Thanks, Paul. You've come quite a long way. I'm going to ask a very simple question. I'm just very curious. Have you attended any live events recently? And if you did, how did you feel? That's a great question. I attended one only a week ago. So I was asked to facilitate a leadership meeting for the MPI UK chapter. And that was a five-star hotel in London. It was pretty, pretty good, but I was super conscious of just how many people there were around and how close they were around me. And also if I felt they were getting a little bit too close, it was like, oh, but the volume of people in London is significantly less than it's been forever. And I think, how did I feel being in the event? Not bad. I think everybody was pretty careful on the social distancing. After a period of time, do you get to a point where venues and others get a little bit, not complacent, but it's it's normal for a lot of people to be going in and out of the same doorway. And does that then create a problem? You know, I had one eye on those things and one eye on the kind of the um, 
a sanitizer that you can take everywhere with you. So yeah, I was, I was careful. I've got an event to do this week. It's a hybrid event on Thursday and Friday of this week. And we've got about 70 people attending and around 300 plus are coming in virtually. So I think people are a little cautious right now. Um, and I think that will stay with us for some time. And I don't think it will ever completely go. I think it will be there because we're talking of our health and, and how we might pass something on to our, our loved ones as well. No, that's very interesting, Paul. And it's funny you mentioned that you were at your first, you know, in-person element of an experience the past week. I was actually the same. Here based in the United States, you know, there are areas within our country that are really starting to be almost 100% open. And this event was actually MPI's WEC. And that was really one of those key areas where within Las Vegas, naturally, as the organizer, there were a lot of different, you know, health and safety regulations that happened um, within the event space, social distancing, health and wellness checks and things like that. But the one interesting thing that I had uh, experienced was that even as I left, say, the expo center or the immediate meetings location and walked back to my hotel room, I was interfacing with a large quantity of public individuals who were not involved in the event at any experience sharing elevators. I was walking naturally through a casino to get back to my hotel room because this is Las Vegas, as well as just walking down the sidewalk and literally rubbing shoulders, um, waiting at a stoplight. So it, it was a very interesting experience for me as well to try and take a look at, okay, in addition to all of that planning and meticulous organization that MPI probably went through to go through all of those different protocols, they were still, you know, in a way having to be a part of just the general public and tourism elements as well. And and so I, I think that I would love to hear a little bit more of how are you finding people responding to safety checks and rules today as things are starting to progress and in certain regions of the world even starting to open up as well yeah i think um how varied it is around the world right now because there are some areas where everybody is completely compliant with this is what we have to do we're going to do it we understand we put the the face mask on we keep the distance in we do all of those things and we get it we understand if our government is saying we need to do this and i'm thinking particularly in kind of Asia and, and maybe Australia, New Zealand in particular, where they are really on this to a far greater degree than, dare I say, in the good old UK, where it just seems that there's this idea that maybe the minimal time that you can have somebody wearing a face mask is a good thing. But I'm not convinced that that is necessarily the case. I think there are people that are very happy to do things that they know is going to be for their benefit. But I think where it it falls over a little bit is where governments suddenly say that is a date. We're all going to be clear by that date because then you're not looking at data. You're looking at that actual date and you're going to do everything that you can as a politician to justify not moving off of your stand that you've made. And that's what's going on in the UK right now. We've been 
like everybody else, doing the mask, doing the distancing, not hugging, doing all of the things that you need to do to keep everybody safe. But suddenly there, there is this date of the middle of July and people are becoming a bit more freer. I think they're, they're feeling more secure, especially if they've been uh, vaccinated. But that in itself is not the answer because vaccination is only going to get you so far. And I think it's an issue everybody has, you know, on the train coming home the other night from this event. Most people were wearing their masks and they were wearing them for long. Yet there were a couple of people, there was somebody sat not very far away from me and she had her, the nose piece was still covered her mouth, but not her nose. And I'm thinking, on, <laughs> you breathe through your nose, right? So if you breathe through your nose, then if you've got bad stuff, it's coming in my direction. So it does put you on edge. And I think where event organisers are great, as you say, is very much in, in being able to make almost a, a little bubble that we go into as delegates where we're looked after, we're kind of royalty, we can't do anything wrong, really. And then when we come outside of that, or we're on transport or on, we're in hotels, then it is completely different. And I think what event producers are going to need to do is to step that whole journey through. Because if they really want to reduce their risk, A, they're going to have to do it for being on site. But also, if they can give assurances to their delegates that actually you get off the plane, you get off the, the train, and then your journey goes in this way, and it is as risk-free as possible, then I think that will help. Paul, I'd love to know, in your opinion right now, what's the number one way for event planners to mitigate risk at the moment? How can they mitigate risk? I think the best thing they can do is, first of all, ask the question, do they need to meet in person? That has to be the first question out the door, because if event planners are working on the basis of, okay, we will get a big number of people to come into our meeting because that's what we've been used to from maybe two, three years ago. It's all changed. So the last 15 to 18 months has definitely changed everything that uh, planners can expect. I know it's a term that we use all of the time, but I think you really do have to know where the, where the choke points are where the, the biggest crowd is going to be at any one time and what you're going to do in there to really keep that as low as possible. So rather than saying, okay, there's one set of restrooms on, say, the first floor, you might need to be saying, look, they're on the first, they're on the third, they're on the fifth. Go and use all of them because actually you don't want the congregation of people in the way that there was before. The way that you're going to mitigate your risk for the people that come is to also be really secure and solid in what you expect from your delegates and your sponsors and your other stakeholders. So if, for example, to my example of the lady on the train that wasn't wearing the, the face mask, if you see that kind of behaviour, what are you going to do to make sure that you deal with it? Because this could be a sponsor that's paid you a, a lot of money and you might decide it can't upset them. But actually, you could get some really bad... Uh, publicity, you might get some negative social media going on if you don't take action. Paul, obviously, you know, with that in mind, risk has really changed over the past 16 months and really how we approach risk management. And, and especially since, you know, your book, Risk It, How to Run uh, Great Events came out back in 2011, I'm sure 
even a bunch has changed in that time. In your eyes, what do you feel have been the largest changes over the past 16 months? I think we need to get away from any dependency on government-backed insurance schemes because they're just not going to exist. Fairly controversial statement, I know, but if you know that there's something wrong and there's likely to be something wrong, then it's it's not a probable risk. And, and therefore, insurers will not write it. Uh, and I think that's something that hasn't yet come out to, to many event planners. They still seem to be holding on to this big idea that it's, it's going to be okay. So I think that goes directly back to the financial risk that has always been there. It's become more acute now because people are having to decide when they want to put deposits and other things down and they're having to look at that far more seriously than they may have done in the past. But prior to the 16 months, the other big issues that have come out since kind of 2011 have really been around dietary needs and requirements of delegates. That is by far and away one of the biggest issues that just keeps coming and has got no signs of stopping. So if you create food and it's not good and you haven't warned people, you know, this idea that serving staff are going to be able to serve canapes and I've got no idea what's in them. <laughs> Those days are gone, completely gone, even if they were there in the first place. But I think it's, again, it's more acute, it's, it's more heightened. And then the other kind of big issue that has come out has been the issue of data. So the security of personal data is massive. And I think we've actually lost our way a little bit in the last 16 months as far as that's concerned, because there was a need to get lots of people, to get them all kind of labelled, to do all of the things that we were never able to do before that without absolute care and control of their personal data. And I think that's got a little bit lost in the mix, but it will definitely be coming back because it's so important and prized. So we've got diet, we've got data, and then the other big risk, of course, is that healthcare of people. And that wasn't really on, on the scene before we had this pandemic. We expected people to be able to get around. We just weren't conscious of it. So if the cleaning standards weren't really up to scratch, did anybody notice? Did anybody care enough? Did anybody care that you were cramming people on a charter flight to go to an exhibition? Really, we didn't. We just wanted to ram as many people in as we could. And I think those days have, if they haven't gone, then something is broken badly because we have to be looking after each other a lot better than we did before. Again, you find that risk is one of those things that is always around us, but it only really gets attention when there's a terrorist attack when there's a tornado or, or something that goes on. And now we've got COVID that's come along to bring it up the scale again. Let's not forget that we have the climate change issue. We have sustainability, which is supposedly a big issue for event planners. But it really isn't if they're encouraging 5,000 people to travel to one spot in the globe. You know, so all of these things, I think for event professionals, it's a really tough time. Because A, there's so much competition, but also there's so much spotlight as well. I totally agree with you, Paul. And I think it comes back to what you were saying earlier, that one question to ask yourself, do I need to bring these people together in person? So thinking about that, could you perhaps give three top tips for organizers when planning events in this post-pandemic world, if you want to call it that? Yeah, absolutely. So three top tips really understand what your client 
is asking for, but also be prepared to push back on that as well. So if they say we need to have this event, we do it every single year or every other year, and I as a CEO want it to happen, then I think we need to be saying, hold on, let's have a look at that. Let's really work out all of the kind of issues involved in that. So I think uh, tip one would be to be far more consultative rather than possibly more of a kind of they've asked me for an event. Thank goodness we've got a gig. We've got some money to come into our coffers. Let's just execute it. I think we have to be more aware of, of what's going on there. I think the second thing is to be really super clear in terms of what that audience is and whether they are an audience that are uh, easily going to travel and come out or whether they might be more might be more open for a, a virtual component of, uh, of a hybrid event even. And I think the other thing is to really uh, keep on top of what's going on in different parts of the globe because it is changing every day and it will continue to change. This is far from over, and even when uh, countries say, yeah, we're going to come back and we'll be fine. I think it was only recently that one of the states in Australia have gone back into lockdown, and you would have thought that they would have been a fairly safe bet because of what they've done uh, over the last 15 months or so, but they could really mess your plans. So I think you have to be asking yourself and, and just being more up to date and I guess the third tip is questioning everything uh, and assuming nothing. I don't think it would be good for any event planner to assume anything right now. That's really interesting. And going along the assumptions and things like that that you just referenced, Paul, one of the more probably controversial topics that have been discussed or popped up even recently is surrounding this idea of, you know, vaccine passports or being able to really ask or force your audience to either be vaccinated or gate that to your in-person experiences. We'd just love to get your thoughts on thinking about this as a potential requirement for entry. And then even, is this something that event planners can do based off of your experience? Yeah, I think good luck with that. If <laughs> if they want to force people to have a vaccination or several or prove that they've got them, I think it is just a legal minefield. I think it's also a minefield in terms of the rights of individuals as well. And can you force somebody to have that to come into your event? I don't think you can. And I think you run the risk as well that uh, people would just say, nope, not going there. And even if you did it, even if you did, which vaccines are you going to accept? Which ones aren't? Which dates are you going to take it from? In Russia, there are some vaccinations that are not recognised by the EU and vice versa. The Russians don't recognise some of the vaccines that are going on in the UK right now. So that straightforward path of getting between those two countries is one that's difficult, if not impossible. So I think if you were to say, yeah, we want people to be vaccinated, then how on earth are you ever going to police it? And what do you do? Do you look for their little evidence card that says, yeah, I've been done? Do you know it relates to them? What if it doesn't? I've got one and it's just basically got my name on it and it's got the date of the two jabs. Great. But Bob, that could be yours. I could give it to you. I could have stolen it from you. 
you're never going to know, are you? So that's why I think it's really important that this social distancing for a while carries on. And I think that's why also the adherence to really looking out and protecting people as though they are unvaccinated is going to be one of the best ways that event planners can really run their events. But I don't see it taking off. I mean, there's so many different rules around the globe, so many different legal arguments that could come in. I think an event planner would spend most of their time trying to, well, justify their day in court and have huge legal expenses. It is. So, Paul, I've heard about a whole new skill set and a whole new certification course that turns people into COVID-19 officers. And I think it's going to be very interesting to find out from their perspective what they've learned, what they've been taught and how they could have created a curriculum in such a short span of time to train them. So I want to know from you, what do you think with the level of ease or the level of trickiness, how does it work when we are navigating enforcing new health and safety rules so that everyone can feel comfortable? How easy or how tricky is it actually? I'd say it's pretty tricky. And I, I'd say that not to put any a dampener on anything, but just because health and safety is constantly changing. And I think if you've got a COVID officer that has got a certification, that's great. That shows an awareness uh, and a level of commitment. But unless that is entwined with everything else that is moving at the same time, then that's going to be fairly challenging. And I think it's not dissimilar to a few years ago where we had data protection qualifications going out left, right and centre to get around some data regulation over in Europe. So all of these people sprang up. They said that they could be officers. You know, they said they could do this. They were certified. But the people that had been doing it for years and years were really upset by that. And they said, who are they to think that they can get into data? Because actually, I've been doing this for 20 years. So I think there's a little bit of that goes on. I think it's a good thing that people are looking at this. But I think if you're a COVID officer, you'd have to ask yourself, what kind of person am I? Am I the person that's going to be reporting on everybody that doesn't do things right? Am I going to be able to help them in some kind of consultative way? Am I going to enjoy it because of the power it gives me? I think there are all sorts of different reasons why people want to do this. I, I guess it depends on the level of the certification and the qualification that they get, because I would be expecting all planners right now to be able to give advice on what delegates need to do. All, all planners should be making sure that they are wiping down microphones after a person has, has spoken on one. Definitely. And, and I think as we begin to, you know, wrap up in the final minutes uh, that we have together, Paul, I know you referenced earlier this idea of the government insurances and some of the challenges that obviously event organizers are going to be facing in the coming months and years with risk mitigation and having a plan B. And just would love to hear your final closing thoughts of, you know, is it really focusing on those elements until, say, COVID is finally a thing of the past? Or do you feel like this is going to some, be something that almost in perpetuity that really is going to need to be top of mind for not only planners, but really the industry? If it was top of mind for years and years, that would be amazing because then we would have a much more robust event sector and people working in it. But I think what tends to happen is as soon as the crisis is over, then we tend to say, okay, we've done that, that was fine. Risk will never go away. 
you know, we don't live in any kind of bubble. And if I was to say to you that over the years we've seen things like um, communicable diseases such as foot and mouth disease in animals, avian flu, SARS, what else, what we have now as well, anything that's communicable has been excluded by insurers for about the last eight years or so, maybe more. To me, it's not news that insurers are not covering these things because they were already excluded anyway. So I think, you know, they, that's not very upbeat, is it really? But uh, it's a kind of a bit of a reality check. If you can see something and you know it's going to happen, then insurers are not interested because they make their money through assessing how likely things are and then hopefully making a profit on it. And I think that's the other issue that gets lost, that they're not charities. They are in business to make money. Interesting points indeed. Paul Cook, the author and managing director of Hybrid Events Center. Paul, thank you very much for all of those incredible insights today, as well as sharing the expertise with your audience. Thank you again for joining us today. Thank you for uh, having me. Thank you for listening to the Inside Events Podcast by Swap Card. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions or would like to access a special discount just for our podcast listeners, send a message to podcast at swapcard.com. Thank you for listening and see you next time on Inside Events.